Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Sarah Worthington. I'm a pro-director here at the LSE, and it's my pleasure tonight to um, introduce the speakers and tell you a little bit about this lecture. This lecture, the screen says, is on global perspectives on Islamic finance. We are very lucky to have um, an ongoing relationship with the Harvard Law School, and this is now the fourth in an annual lecture series jointly organised by the London School of Economics and the Harvard Law School as part of a series on Islamic finance. And so tomorrow there will be a full day seminar on ethics and governance, um, looking at Islamic economic and ethico-legal perspectives. And I guess in this current financial climate, looking at the ethics of finance and different financing arrangements is uh, quite an important thing to do. But the purpose of these annual lectures is to promote better understanding and to spur an open discussion of what is a growing interest in Islamic finance. I can remember going to um, one of these events, must now be, I don't think it was the first one, I think it was the second one, and I was there with a group of people who were very eminent and very experienced, and I was really quite ignorant. But the whole process was um, opened and explored in a way that made the issues quite accessible to the novices like me. And I think since then, many more people have become engaged in the issues and far more knowledgeable over quite a short period of time than we were um, a few years ago. So this annual lecture series is really contributing to that endeavour. Uh, last year we had the Economic Secretary to the Treasury, Ian Pearson, speaking to us about the government's plans and its efforts um, in the sector and how it wants to um, try and make London the European Centre for Islamic Finance. And what we want to do today is, um, in both the lecture and the discussion that will follow, is to explore the growing role of Islamic finance in the global financial markets, especially given um, the current tumultuous events of the last few years, and touch on how morality informs finance and um, how it should inform and enhance the role of modern finance for the future. The way that we're going to um, run this evening is that our first and main speaker, uh, Mr. Stephen Green, will speak for about 20 minutes, and then uh, our second speaker, Dr. Uma Chapra, will speak for 15 minutes or so, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions. Uh, Mr. Green has to make quite a rapid exit, uh, just a little bit before 8, but it does give us plenty of time for discussion. If, um, uh, Stephen a brief introduction. He probably needs no real introduction from me or from anyone else. But he, as you know, is the group chairman of HSBC Holdings. He's been with the bank since 1982. And I guess in that time he'll have seen a huge number of changes. His career has taken him to Hong Kong, New York, the Middle East, and London, obviously. Uh, he published a book Good Value, Reflections on Money, Morality, and an Uncertain World. And he spoke about uh, that book here at the LSE last year, I think it was, wasn't it? 
Um, a book that got a great deal of publicity, a great deal of um, interest shown by all sorts of people. Uh, but he's here tonight really to um, reflect on some of his experiences with HSBC in their international Islamic banking business because they are widely considered to have the premier cross-border financial services provider um, and deal with retail, corporate and institutional clients. So he's well experienced to explore some of those issues with us. Uma Shapra I will introduce now so that I don't interrupt the flow of um, the discussion that's going to take place. Uh, Uma Shapra is uh, a senior economist and research advisor with the Islamic Development Bank in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. He's well known for his scholarship in this field of Islamic economics and is currently serving as an advisor um, to the bank, but before that he was the senior economic advisor at the Saudi Arabian Monetary Agency. He's published, and as an academic myself I always feel a bit embarrassed when I read these comparative numbers, he, he's published more than 15 books and over 100 papers and delivered, have to be hundreds of speeches uh, around the world on the topic of Islamic economics and finance. He too has um, written one publication that's received a lot of attention recently and that's Towards a Just Monetary System. Uh, he's received the Islamic Development Bank Award for Islamic Economics and the King Faisal International Award for Islamic Studies, uh, both in the late 80s. So we have two speakers who can give us different perspectives and I imagine illuminating ones. So first of all, Mr. Stephen Green. up a bit, <laughs> largely because of my short-sightedness. Whoops, how do I stop it? <laughs> there we go. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for your kind remarks, and it is a pleasure and an honour to be here tonight. My only qualification for being here tonight is that uh, at HSBC we do Islamic finance. Um, I am absolutely not a technical expert, and I promise you that when we get to the question and answers, all the difficult questions get passed to Dr. Umar, and I take all the easy ones. Uh, and what I want to do now is not go into the details of our Islamic business, though I will comment on it a little in the course of my remarks. I want to set it actually in the wider context of a financial crisis that has brought to the fore, for the first time probably for two or three decades, some of the questions about what finance really is for that I, have, that I think are quite generally applicable um, and which it's worth thinking about in the context of a discussion of the role of Islamic finance. If you think about it, it's now about 18 months since the famous, infamous collapse of Lehman Brothers. Uh, and it's a sign of the globalized nature of our world that contagion from a subprime mortgage crisis, which might be argued to have started in Florida, could spread so rapidly around the world, affecting so many countries. It's in fact impacted every uh, business that you can think of. It's impacted every economy virtually. If you think about it from the Icelandic banking sector through to Chinese exports, uh, leaving the world in the throes of the first synchronized global recession and also leading to a huge breakdown in public trust in the financial markets in general and of course in many ways in banks in particular. Well, today, compared with a year ago, uh, life feels more comfortable. The financial markets have been stabilized and a global recovery is sort of underway. 
But it's very much a two-speed recovery, with emerging markets currently rebounding much faster than developed economies, uh, which are, in our view, likely to face a protracted and difficult return to growth. The crisis has also, of course, had a severe impact on the global financial system. Public trust, as I mentioned, has been seriously undermined. Financial institutions, more than any others perhaps, have a long journey up a steep mountain in order to prove the real value they can add to the wider society. But although it may not seem surprising for a banker to open uh, his remarks by talking about the financial crisis, you may be wondering exactly what all these thoughts have got to do with this evening's theme, and I want to elaborate on that a bit. Because amongst the many lessons to be learned from this in intense period of turbulence and recession which the world has just been through, I think three of the most important ones have a direct bearing on the subject of Islamic finance, uh, and I want to explore each of those uh, in the next uh, uh, few minutes or so. And these lessons are the following three, really. The first is that the last few years have seen the principles of market capitalism tested to their very limit, and indeed some would argue beyond their very limit. However, ultimately the crisis has only served to reinforce the fact that there is simply no alternative to market-based development, and therefore we have to learn the lessons from the crisis and move forward, because at the end of the day there is no alternative. Uh, that brings to my mind Churchill's famous defence of democracy. Churchill famously said about democracy that it was the worst form of government except for all the other forms that have been tried from time to time. Well, I think you can say of markets as an engine of social and economic development that they're the worst form except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. Social and economic development is an intrinsic, or it might even say the intrinsic responsibility of our market system. Without it, poverty, unemployment and illiteracy will cast a shadow over the growing and youthful populations of the developing world particularly, and in the endeavour to provide greater social and economic progress, I think the financial markets in general, the banking industry in particular, have a vital contribution to make. So that's the first point. The second point is that the crisis has accelerated the speed at which the, the world's economic centre of gravity is moving from the west to the east and also from the north to the south. This has become something of a cliché in commentary of late, but I question whether we have really begun to understand the vast scale of this change and what it amounts to for economies and societies all around the world. The crisis has taught us some valuable lessons about the importance of working together, but how we define and build our common ground in response to the imperatives of globalization is simply going to be one of the biggest challenges for all of us this century. Thirdly, it's clear that the financial uh, sector has to get back to developing products which meet genuine customer needs and to do so in an ethical and sustainable way. The past few years in the mainstream financial markets have shown what happens when chasing short-term profits becomes an end in itself. And when some of those products and profits in indeed prove not only not to be sustainable, but actually to be illusory. Now, it's my firm belief that the ethics that are implicit in Islamic finance 
can and will play an important role in supporting the change that has got to spread through the markets as a whole. So I want this evening to try and look at the role of finance uh, uh, that it can and must play in economic development. Now it's become received wisdom that our current era has suffered from unprecedented incoming inequality. Equally significant for the future historian will however be the enormous increase in opportunity and reduction in hardship globally over recent decades as a growing middle class has emerged throughout much of the developing world and hundreds of millions of people literally have been lifted out of poverty in many developing markets. Financial markets have played a vital role in this and they must continue to do so. As billions of people start to benefit from regular income, they will need access to financial services. Whether it's microfinance in rural areas in, in poor countries, whether it's small business lending, because one fact that is repeatedly established in country after country is that most job creation takes place in small businesses, or whether it's personal savings and wealth management services for the many markets where life expectancy is getting longer and longer and where the importance of providing for your old age is becoming greater and greater. Companies need access to banking services, to trade finance, to capital markets in order to develop their business, to increase trade, to provide, uh, to provide employment and ultimately make a positive contribution to the economy and the wider society. Absolutely the wrong lesson to take from the crisis would be that the developing world does not need fully functioning financial markets. It is sometimes said that for the first time in human history, the world now has enough resources and technology to wipe out poverty, perhaps even in a generation. I think the, the honest real truth is that some such great global philanthropic project to spread and redistribute wealth equally around the world is not likely to be a realistic objective. And the truth is that there's no alternative to ensuring economic growth broadly spread through the developing markets of the world. When I look at the Islamic world in particular, inequality of income is a feature there too, as elsewhere. In 2008 in the Middle East, for example, the total wealth of high net worth individuals was estimated at, uh, where are we, 1,400 billion, so that's 1.4 trillion dollars. This is expected to double by 2013. Indeed, in the UAE, GDP per capita is the 17th highest in the world, higher than in the UK or Germany. And yet, throughout the region, poverty remains a huge problem uh, amongst many, many people. By contrast to the UAE, for example, Egypt's GDP per capita is 133rd in the World League table, Eritrea's is sixth from the bottom. All of those are part of that region. Moreover, in many parts of the world, population size is growing more quickly than economic power. According to the World Bank, the Middle East and North Africa have seen the fastest rate of population growth over the last 30 years. This population growth presents a number of challenges. In stark contrast, populations in many developed countries, but also in many emerging markets, are now growing older. In China, the most spectacular case of this, 
one of the most, uh, obviously the, the great economic powerhouse of the first part of this century in so many ways, the UN predicts that over 23% of the population will be over 65 by 10 years' time. Last year's Arab Knowledge Report stated that 50 million new jobs would need to be created by the year 2050 to accommodate the growth in the working population of the Arab world. Yet the World Bank figures also show that in the Middle East and North Africa, the average number of registered businesses per thousand population is just one-sixth of what it is on average in the OECD. Many Islamic countries still lack the breadth and depth that their financial markets will need in order to support and develop growth in the decades to come. There are about 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. Only 14% of them, it is estimated, have bank accounts as of now. If you compare that with the UK, for example, the equivalent percentage is 95%. Of course, it's important not to exaggerate the challenges and not to underplay the extraordinary change that is taking place. I take Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim country. There, the percentage of the population living on less than $2 a day has reduced in just the last 15 years from over 80% to just over half. A long way to go, you might say, but nonetheless, dramatic progress. The median age there is 27, one of the youngest in the world, and 22 million new workers will join the labor force in the next decade. A number roughly equivalent, by the way, to the entire population of Australia, its neighbor. Furthermore, urbanization is spreading, and this year, for the first time, more than half of Indonesia's population will be living in cities. This is all evidence, actually, that India's, Indonesia's economy is growing and becoming more sophisticated. But today, 43 million people still do not have access to banking services. This is in part due to a lack of access to banking infrastructure, especially in rural areas. A lack of money to meet the first deposit requirements of many of the banks. A lack of financial capability, which results, as it does everywhere in the world, in people turning to alternative finance, often in the form of the very unpleasant phenomenon of loan sharks. There is now a real opportunity to extend legitimate institutional finance into these new markets, offering products and services which are appropriate for the local population and to increase levels of financial capability, so that in this way, banks can start to create sustainable financial growth and begin to prove their worth to wider society. Indonesia's story is, of course, just part of a much broader narrative, which is my second theme this evening, the wider shift in the world's economic centre of gravity. I guess it's true to say that in the last couple of generations, too many people have tended to see the world through Western eyes. Too many people have tended to think about the world as a unipolar world dominated, actually, by a single superpower. Yet as the financial crisis has shown, that world is now changing fundamentally. This was clearly demonstrated when the G20 took over, in effect, from the G7 and G8 as the primary coordinating forum for discussing and developing global financial economic policy in the face of the crisis. The rise of the G20 with its broad reputation of emerging markets, countries such as China, India, 
Saudi Arabia, Brazil, as part of the world stage, on the world stage, co-equal with the developed economies, is one of the biggest changes of our times and one which will certainly be noticed in the history books. All the indications are that this shift in economic power is not some recession-driven blip. It seems certain that emerging markets will not only drive the recovery, but also lead global growth for the next generation. This year alone, Western GDP is expected to grow by just 1.5%. China is expected to grow by a staggering 9.5%, Asia as a whole by at least 4%. We're also seeing increased trading flows between emerging markets as they become and they need to become less dependent on exports to Western consumer nations. For any business, this mes the message of all this is clear. All businesses, all financial institutions, need to adapt to this changing world. In many cases, we're likely to be challenged by emerging markets servicing their own mass markets, with products far cheaper and more innovative than the Western counterparts, born of the ingenuity which flourishes even in the most poor countries. If those of us in the West want to compete, we have to understand the cultures and traditions of customers in those countries and offer and develop and be prepared to compete in providing products and services that reflect the real needs of people in those real environments. This shift from West to East and North to South must logically therefore lead to a new mindset actually on the part of almost everybody. I believe that the next half century or so will see new political alliances, new trade alliances. You're starting to see this as time goes by in the next two or three years. New cultural interactions. There's a real opportunity to open the way to a more inclusive way of running world affairs. The unprecedented level of global cooperation, which was forged in the heat of the financial crisis, demonstrates that it is possible for the world to operate in a different way, and indeed the world needs to operate in a different way if the financial markets are to achieve a greater degree of stability and of responsiveness to real customer needs. This is one of the most important lessons of the last 18 months, and it's one which must not get forgotten as the crisis recedes into the background. There can be no return to the status quo of the early part of this decade. Today, of course, poverty lies at the root of some of the biggest challenges the world faces. It is poverty which leads to political instability, which causes states to fail, and can be a factor in all kinds of international uh, uh, stresses and tensions. I very strongly believe that in the Islamic world in particular, but as I will go on to argue, not just the Islamic world, a successful Islamic finance sector is a, one of the key ways in which the financial markets more broadly can provide real leadership and by supporting economic development can make a real contribution to the tackling of the great global challenges that we all face. It is striking how much progress has been made, of course, in the last decade or two in Islamic finance. There are now 400 Islamic banks around the world and 200 conventional banks offering Islamic financial services one of which I happen to work for. With current market penetration rates for Islamic finance still only at between 2 and 4%, there is huge untapped potential for further growth. 
Industry forecasts suggest Islamic assets under management could increase by 20% a year for the next several years. The market is becoming broader and more diverse. First in terms of geography. Modern Islamic financial products were first offered in the 70s in the Middle East and Malaysia. So it is perhaps not surprising that those markets are the most mature. However, we're now seeing services being developed across many regions of the world, and as a result, Islamic finance products are now available in something like 48 countries. And to take just one example, a rather striking one because it's a very big one, China, which has a population of, nobody knows exactly, but somewhere between 80 to 100 million Muslims, recently awarded its first license for Islamic banking, and in Hong Kong, we HSBC launched the first Sharia-compliant investment fund to be approved by the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission. Closer to home in this country, we shouldn't forget the potential market either. In Britain, there are anything up to 2 million Muslims living in this country. There are perhaps 4 million in Germany, perhaps 7 million in France, all of them potentially customers for Islamic finance. Today, London is the world's third largest centre for Islamic finance, and it has become the leading hub in the Western world. London's financial centre has a long history of gaining first-mover advantage when it comes to new markets, and Islamic finance is a very important new welcome diversity to what is otherwise a mature financial services sector here. A number of very practical steps have been taken to accommodate Islamic finance providers here in London. The Financial Services Authority uh, authorised the first Islamic bank in Britain in 2006, and regulatory changes have been made to address the requirements of particular Islamic financial products. As a result, there are now 12 Islamic banks in London and 10 global banks that have units providing Islamic financial services. Experts will no doubt say that there's some way to go in this, but if you compare the position as of even five years ago, let alone 10, let alone 20 years ago, I think it is clear that substantial progress is being made in, financial, in Islamic finance becoming a real part of the mainstream of the world's capital markets. Secondly, the Islamic financial market is becoming more diverse in terms of its products. In Malaysia, the first-rated Islamic sovereign sukuk was launched in 2002, and at that time was seen, if you will, as an exotic offshoot from the mainstream. Well, now it's seen as part, an important part of any institutional investor's portfolio. The appetite for these sukuks was further underlined last year, when not only the Indonesian government sukuk was given uh, was seven times oversubscribed but also many of its buyers were conventional investors and not just Islamic ones. Takaful is another developing area of Islamic finance and is forecast to grow manyfold over the next decade. It's an area which has the potential to meet the needs of individuals but also businesses and even large corporations. In doing so, Takaful products will provide that vital protection for consumers who might otherwise go uninsured. It's an important financial service in any developing economy or society. And indeed, if you look at markets such as Qatar and Kuwait, just to name two examples, it is clear that the service is needed because conventional insurance take-up has been very low. Of course, like any relatively young industry, Islamic finance still needs to overcome some obstacles if it is to grow. 
Indeed, you might even say that mature financial markets are always needing to overcome new obstacles in order to learn the lessons. But of particular importance for Islamic finance is, of course, the need to find ways of greater standardization of products. A unified set of Sharia rules have not been subscribed by the Islamic banks globally, which means that Sharia scholars take a number of different positions about the acceptability of products. This means that the process of obtaining approval on whether a product is Sharia compliant or not can be lengthy, and the result of the current lack of standardization can often be high transaction and regulatory costs. In addition, this uncertainty can stifle development of innovative products and can lead to too many product structures for which the providers which for the providers, excuse me, which for the providers can be costly or inefficient and can also confuse consumers and increase the risk of operational mistakes. These are challenges which it is certainly possible to overcome, at least directionally. My colleagues at the bank, who know much more about the detail of this than I do, understand that there may never be one global solution for all asset classes or products. But we do believe it would be helpful for the future of the industry if there was a move in the direction of a higher degree of standardization. We also know that our customers don't want unnecessary complexity. Indeed, that's actually a theme you hear in every sector of the financial markets these days. Uh, the proliferation of complexity in the subprime uh, mortgages secondary market was one of the key problems of the financial crisis. So the customer demand for straightforwardness, for clarity, for transparency is a very real one which is important for all sorts of reasons, practical and ethical, that we should respond properly to. And in the specific case of the, of the technical characteristics of Islamic finance products, if progress can be made in this area, it will help the Islamic finance industry to compete with conventional banking in terms of pricing and availability. Where issues involving pure economics interact with wider issues having to do with appropriateness and ethics, the debate is not always going to be easy and finding the consensus is not always going to be easy. But it's only by trying that we'll begin to tackle the challenges of this century, especially for the millions and millions of people who will benefit from the opportunity that the shift in the world's centre of gravity is bringing for them. This brings me to my final thought, uh, my final lesson from the crisis, if you will, and that is, and here is one that I think is directly of interest to anybody who cares about the Islamic finance sector, and that is that the financial sector as a whole has to get back to developing products which meet customer needs in an ethical and sustainable way. There is a fundamental question on the ethics of money which underlines any discussion of faith and finance. It's a question that has been asked through the ages. The answers aren't always the same in their specifics, but there is a surprisingly common nervousness about finance. As you don't need me to tell you, I'm sure, the Quran states that those who devour usury shall not stand. Confucius said that the gentleman doesn't have anything to do with finance. He leaves that to the small man. Think about that. St. Paul said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The point is that there's a very, you can see from these very different uh, uh, sayings from very different backgrounds 
There's a very widespread feeling of nervousness about what money can be and what it can do. These quotations demonstrate a long and deeply held suspicion of bankers and their trade, and recent events, of course, have done nothing to allay those suspicions. We all know that the financial industry's reputation has been severely damaged by the crisis. This is in part due to the very type of short-term greed they warn against. But I, and many of my colleagues in the industry, firmly believe that it is not only possible, but actually essential to have an ethical approach to banking if you believe that your job is to provide sustainable services in a sustainable business model in the market. The history and ethos of Islamic finance provides some very striking lessons for the wider banking community at this time. Islamic banking weathered the worst of the financial crisis because its principles advocate avoiding excessive leverage, get that, the financial markets of the world from recent years, avoiding uncertainty and speculation, focusing instead on real product projects with real assets, getting back to basics, you might say. This is not an occasion for me to be blowing HSBC's trumpet, but we do try to take a similarly prudent approach to banking when we get it right at our best. One of my predecessors in the bank, uh, a man by the name of Charles Addis, who lived about 100 years ago, and was a prolific writer on the ethics of business, said this in a letter to his family back home. He was based in Beijing at the time. The ultimate basis for all economic conceptions is ethical. And at our best in HSBC, we've always tried to live up to that principle. It means a conservative approach to investment. It means, in our case, we always try to take deposits before we lend, we look to the long term, and we work to maximize the value of the business in a way that is sustainable. In exactly this context, Islamic finance is important to us at HSBC because it fits so closely with those principles that we seek to make sure inform the way we do business. As the world's leading emerging markets bank, we're very conscious of the wider responsibilities we have to the communities we serve, and in something like a quarter of the markets where we operate, the Islamic faith is the majority religion of the people. Providing access to banking services plays an important role in, people's, in improving people's lives. And as I've mentioned, I think the financial sector's role in tackling poverty, in developing new businesses, and at a broader level, raising the quality of public infrastructure and services for the people, the financial sector's role is critical. But it's essential that these services are provided ethically and in, and in ways which are appropriate to the culture and, uh, and values of the communities where we operate. In our view, this means looking beyond simply compliance with legal or regulatory obligations, but trying always to act with integrity, providing services that the customers need and can trust. It is trust, after all, which in the aftermath of the financial crisis is the most precious of commodities in the financial services. We can now see that. We've been reminded of that very painfully. Islamic finance is a key uh, vehicle for doing this. In a way, our approach to Islamic finance is not fundamentally, dif fundamentally different from what we seek to do in all other product areas. 
We have explicitly labelled ethical funds in our asset management business. We have explicitly labelled environmental funds in our asset management business. But whatever we do, and whichever communities we're serving, our job is to provide the services in the way the community wants and needs and can understand and can respect and trust. HSBC Amana, as we call it, a name given to it by a gentleman sitting in the front row who basically was the leader in establishing our business, is now a decade old. It has major operations in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, in Indonesia and Malaysia, as well as in other Gulf cooperation markets such as Qatar and Bahrain, and provides services to local Muslim populations here in the UK. It's been very successful. Just a couple of weeks ago, Euromoney magazine kindly named us as the best international Islamic bank. And I think one of the reasons for that success, and I'm happy to talk about it because I take no personal credit, it's my colleagues who earned that accolade. I think one of the reasons for that success has been a recognition that our customers who want to use Islamic finance have different preferences, but at the same time place equal value on performance and service. One of the striking things about it, and this has been true from the first, is that we found our Islamic finance services being used, and I've already alluded to this, by both Muslim and non-Muslim customers. One of the reasons non-Muslims are attracted to Islamic finance products is that its principles are attractive to those who simply want to undertake explicitly ethical banking. And indeed, just as we wouldn't differentiate between customers according to their community or faith backgrounds, so the people who work in our HSBC Amala team come from many different nationalities, practice a wide range of different religions. What they have in common is that they're all committed to delivering the best Islamic finance opportunities for our customers. Finally, uh, we at HSBC want to play our part in helping the Islamic finance industry to develop and progress. And as I was saying earlier, I think there are plenty of challenges uh, uh, for the sector as it develops, just as there are plenty of challenges in all other sectors too. One element of this work is our sponsorship of the Harvard Islamic Finance Project, which explores theory and provides a platform for intellectual debate amongst the various stakeholders, including Sharia scholars, Islamic finance practitioners, and Islamic economists. Well, finally, as I'm here at the London School of Economics, uh, I, I think it's only appropriate to include, to conclude, with a quotation from an economist, namely Adam Smith, who outlined the value of the banking system uh, uh, sector as follows, in his slightly florid 18th century language, it is not by augmenting the capital of a country but by rendering a greater part of that capital more active and productive than it would otherwise be, that the most judicious operations of banking can increase the industry of a country. These words still resonate today. The banking sector can indeed must add value, but it can only do so if it acts judiciously. The fundamental lesson we all need to learn from the crisis is that whatever kind of banking services we provide, ethics and values have to drive everything we do. Then and only then can we be sure that we're adding real value to customers and start to contribute responsibly to the economic and social development of society as a whole. Thank you very much.
going to ask you to hold your questions. That isn't my list of questions. It's just things that I thought were worth writing down. But you, probably like me, do have a list of questions. But just hold them um, while uh, Dr. Chopra gives us his um, insights, and then, and then we'll have all the questions together. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I am grateful for this invitation to speak before this gathering. There was a time when I wanted to come to the London School of Economics for graduate studies. But uh, this school was not able to give any scholarship, so I went to the United States. Our loss. The, in the 1950s, early 1950s, when I was a college student, before most of you were born, anyone who talked about Islamic finance was considered to be crazy. He, he is out of his mind. The system is not workable. But gradually, the system has picked up and a number of crises that has taken place in the conventional financial system has given respectability to Islamic finance. So these crises that have been, that have occurred in the conventional system, the general reason that is given for these is excessive lending excessive and imprudent lending. The question is, why is this possible in, uh, in institutions where people are rational, in countries where governments are democratic and well-established, why is it possible for banks to resort to excessive lending? Is it because of some moral failure is it because of inadequate market discipline or is it because of inadequate regulation and supervision? Well, the fact is that all these three reasons are there. In general, there has been a moral decline in all societies, not only in the West, everywhere. And this is reflected not only in the financial system, it is reflected everywhere in families, breakdown of families leading to juvenile delinquency, then uh, corporate scandals and a lot of other ills that we see around us are the result of moral failure. But of course uh, this is not all. There is a weakening market discipline in the financial system. And why is this the case? Discipline comes because of, of uh, incentives or deterrence. We all know that if there were no examinations in schools and colleges, most of us would not have studied very hard. Because if everyone can pass, why study hard? 
So also in the financial system, if there is less discipline, then the financial system cannot work as it should. And uh, there is, uh, a, I mean, not enough incentive or deterrent. I would say less deterrent than it, there should be. And uh, this, how, where does it come from? Does it crumb, come from the existence of collateral? No, collateral is necessary. It is necessary even in Islamic finance. But collateral does not provide full protection because the value of collateral can fluctuate and can go down. So you cannot rely fully on the collateral. The other thing which uh, reduces discipline if uh, it is not to dealt with properly is the sale of debt. When you give debt to somebody and you can sell the debt to, to someone else, you have passed the risk. You get rid of the risk. So why would you do then proper screening of the debt? Why would there be proper underwriting? If I can get rid of the risk, well and good, I mean, see other person's concern. If uh, it was possible to ha for the other person to have recourse, then of course uh, it may have been better, uh, may, may not have been that bad. But uh, when there is no possibility of recourse to the original person, original debtor, and uh, the final debtor does not know who is the one who has given credit and I don't know, the creditor does not know who is the final debtor. So then the problems can arise. But anyway, sale of debt may not be possible because it would be possible to sell prime debt but not subprime debt. So what do you do to sell subprime debt? You mix the two, securitization. You mix prime and subprime debt. However, if people knew exactly the proportion of prime and subprime debt in the securities that they were buying, the problem may not have been that bad. But there was no, not enough transparency. Collateralized debt obligations mixed the prime and the debt prime debt. There was lack of transparency. In other words, there was a lot of fraud going on. And uh, Mr. Bananke has acknowledged this. There were abusive <laughs> and deceptive lent practices going on. But why was this possible when the Federal Reserve was there? Weren't they resp responsible for taking care of these things to oversee the market and see that there the fraud was not going on? But Mr. Greenspan, because of his liberal philosophy, did not want the Federal Reserve to intervene in the market. The market will take care of itself. If there was any fraud, the market will correct it. But the market was not able to do this. Because, you see, the, in the, unless there is uh, transparency, people do not really know what is going on. 
and they they get cheated and uh, in addition to mr bananke mr christopher cox the chairman of securities and exchange commission said that many laws were broken but these laws were being broken and there were abusive and unfair and deceptive lending practices it was the job of the authorities to intervene and see see to it but the the liberal philosophy of mr greenspan came in the way he did not want to intervene in the market to ensure that there was uh, there that these abusive practices did, uh, did not take place the market was unable to take care of this in addition to this collateralized debt obligations there was another thing which also brought about a little uh, less discipline in the market it is credit default swaps this was a way of ensuring i give a loan to somebody and i want to insure myself so i buy a credit default swap there is nothing wrong in this basically even within even in islamic finance it is acceptable but uh, in addition to acting as an insurance it became a gambling instrument wagering instrument and a large number of credit default swaps were sold in the market by way of gambling you can see this from the fact that the outstanding amount of derivatives in the market was 692 trillion dollars in march 2009 and the world gdp at that time was only 57 trillion dollars so about 12 times more and this it could not have been 12 times if uh, there was no fraud and there was no uh, gambling going on and uh, <clears throat> so this was collateralized debt obligations credit default swaps and then there was the failure of rating agencies they had a an incentive to do this i mean there was no I mean, the vested interest because uh, they the the companies for whom they wrote, wrote these uh, uh, they provided these ratings they, they were paid these rating agents so the rating agency had a weighted vested interest and they did not take into account all the facts they took only the facts which were given by the by the companies themselves instead of checking these these facts they just wrote the uh, the ratings on the on the basis of the whatever information was given to them then of course there was this concept of too big to fail and the supervisor's failure supervisor's failure because as i said already mr greenspan believed in liberal philosophy and he did not want to intervene in the market so this was first of all there was a moral decline throughout the world i mean not just in western countries and there was a lack of market discipline and the final thing supervisor's failure because of this liberal philosophy 
the supervisors did not want to do what was needed to be done to be done to correct the market was there a fault line in the system why all these things uh, uh, take why did all these things take place <clears throat> now in the islamic financial system something is done to correct all these things because of the profit and loss sharing the financier has to be more careful he will be more careful in evaluating the de de uh, the proposals in addition because islam does not allow the sale of debt you cannot uh, pass the risk to somebody else so you have to to re uh, check the debt proposal very carefully in so what the islamic financial system does it mean that islamic financial system does not allow debt it does allow debt but then the debt is uh, is uh, not in terms of lending or borrowing i cannot lend money or borrow money i can sell goods on credit and i can buy goods on credit and what what does this do this links the credit market to the real market in other words there cannot be excessive lending if i can i can lend and or borrow without any link with the with the real sector of the economy there can be excessive borrowing or lending but within the islamic system this is not possible credit is available but only when it is related to the a real good or service not just borrowing or lending because if there is this borrowing or lending it can find its way to the to the speculative or gambling market and there is excessive expansion of credit so the some of the salient features of the islamic financial system are uh, emerged from the basic philosophy of islam which is justice justice is the hallmark of islamic teachings there has to be risk sharing in other words if i lend to somebody 100 dollars and i get 110 dollars after one year and irrespective of whether this man has suffered a loss or made a profit this is not justice within the islamic framework if i want to get a return of 10 dollars when he makes a profit then i i must also share in the loss if there is a loss if he has made a loss i must share in the loss so this will introduce a discipline in the system in other words i will be more careful in lending in seeing to it that the project is 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 worthwhile the so risk risk sharing no risk no gain and then there is another requirement in which islamic finance still lags behind is the equitable allocation of credit the financial system around the world gets money from a broad spectrum of society and a substantial part of it goes only to the rich this is through so the financial system has enabled the rich to get richer 
and made the poor poorer. This, uh, of course, a great deal of effort is being made nowadays to overcome this, but so far the financial system has not done much about it. And so debt is possible within the Islamic framework, uh, framework but has been, has been discouraged greatly, as, as all other religions have. Even in Christianity, even Shakespeare said, do not a buyer, do not a borrower or a lender be. So debt, uh, borrowing has been, has been discouraged. It should be primarily for productive purposes. Something which is going to increase your ability to return the money. And uh, the Prophet also said, Reduce your debt, you will live a free, a free person's life. Because uh, as uh, uh, one of our khulafas, uh, Sayyidina Umar said, إِيَّاكُمْ وَالدَّيْنِ فَإِنَّ أَوَّلُهُ هَمٌ وَآخِرُهُ حَرْبٌ Reduce your debt because the beginning of it is worry whether you will be able to repay it or not, what is going to happen, you will become bankrupt. And the end, of course, is very often bankruptcy. So debt has been discouraged in most societies, including the Western societies' original values, but it, it, it became promoted more and more so that there was excessive lending to the extent that it was not seen whether the borrower will be able to repay the debt. I mean, if we give a loan, we have to see whether he will be able to repay it. If his income is 100, then I give a loan to him of 500, I know that it will be very difficult for him to repay. So the, the debt has to have a link with the real sector as well as the borrower's ability to repay. If this is not taken into account, there will be lots of problems later on. So while Islam allows debt, it imposes a number of conditions for debt financing. I have already indicated the, the asset being sold or leased must be, must be real and not notional or imaginary. In other words, it is not possible to get a loan for gambling or for speculation in the, uh, in the speculative markets. Seller must own and possess the assets being sold or leased. As I said, you can, you can have debt only in the purchase and sell or sale of goods. And these goods must be, must be real. As the seller must own and possess the assets being sold or leased. And the transaction must be a genuine trade transaction with the full intention of giving and taking delivery. And the debt cannot be sold. This is a very important restriction. It may appear at one time, I thought that this, uh, this was probably not right. Why, why shouldn't I be able to sell the debt? But after this recent crisis, I realized that this, this had a great sense in it. If I am able to sell the debt, then why should I do proper screening of the debt? Sell as much as you can, 
I give it that and I sell it's sold and it's sold and it's sold so there is excessive expansion of debt but if it is not possible to sell the debt and I know that I will suffer a loss if uh, there is default then I will be very careful so debt cannot be sold the risk of default associated with it must be borne by the lender himself this will motivate him to more to be more careful in lending will help prevent fraud so these are some of the conditions that uh, are laid down by islam in debt financing these are uh, the first three of these will link will create a link between debt and the real sector of the economy debt will not be cannot be excessive it will grow in in step with the growth of the economy if the, if the economy grows by 5% the debt will be somewhere close to it 5% 6% maybe 7% or 4% something like this very very close to it and uh, this uh, is very important because when the one of the most important causes of the of these financial crisis is excessive lending and borrowing and uh, <clears throat> what are the implications of this for the for the conventional financial system raise the share of equity and lower that of debt in total financing if the in other words the control the leverage during the this uh, capital market uh, institution which 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 failed recently in the united states long term capital market the the leverage was very high at the, at, at the end of the crisis the leverage was 167 in other words for every dollar they were able to borrow 167 dollars in the beginning when there was no no crisis the leverage was still high 25 then it became 67 and ultimately it was 167 when the federal reserve uh, stepped in to to correct the situation to save the financial system from a crisis so control leverage has to be controlled and uh, equity has to be increased there are a number of western scholars who support this idea professor rugoff of harvard university said in an ideal world equity and debt must play in a in an equal role the the equity must increase and the role of debt must decline and this was of course the case uh, uh, in earlier days when you were able not able to borrow in 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 keeping with with your capital not not excessively allow great debt credit primarily for promoting development of the real sector the if the debt is linked to the real sector of the economy it will promote 
the economy and not excessive borrowing. Require banks to hold debt until maturity to motivate them to ensure careful underwriting. If our debt is to be sold, there must be full transparency along with right of recourse. If not, the issuer must hold a meaningful proportion of Now Mr. Greenspan has come out with the idea that the, that the creditor must hold at least a proportion of the debt. If the debt is 100, maybe he should hold at least 10 or 15 dollars of the debt. Whether this uh, will be successful or not, we don't know. But CDS is the credit default swaps, which came to provide insurance against default, should not be allowed to become instruments for wages. There is no harm in, in insurance, because creditors want to insure themselves. But if this is only up to, up to them, in other words, if I buy a swap for the, the loan that I have given and a hundred other people are also able to buy the swap, the uh, bank will, uh, will, uh, will, be, uh, will not be able to fulfill its obligations if there is a default because the, the risk has increased considerably. So the CADSs must not be allowed to become instruments for wagering. All financial institutions must be regulated and not merely commercial banks. Some arrangement must be made to enable the subprime borrowers to get credit. I am through almost. The <clears throat> because if you introduce greater discipline in the financial system, the rough subprime borrowers may be left out. And of course, in any society which stands for justice, some sort of an arrangement has to be made to allow credit on to, to even such people. What sort of an arrangement should be made or can be made, this is up to uh, uh, us to decide. But ultimately, there has to be some sort of an arrangement for these people too. Islamic finance is, of course, still in its uh, infancy. PLS profit and loss sharing is, is uh, small. Debt is a major show, share of Islamic finance. But I presume that gradually as the, as the system uh, develops and a number of shared institutions which are necessary to support the system get established, the system will become uh, fairly well operated. Thank you very much. could uh, keep your questions relatively short, um, indicate, I think we've got microphones roving, indicate you want to ask a question, let me know who you are and where you come from, and you can direct your question at either of our speakers. So, floor's with you. We'll start over here. I'm, uh, my name is Reverend Paul Nicholson, and I'm Chairman of the Zacchaeus 2000 Trust. 
uh, I've been dealing with uh, the poor poorest when they're in debt uh, for the last 20, 30 years. Um, the problem that I constantly have is that, uh, uh, yes, indeed, the market uh, does create wealth. Uh, but it, there seem, governments seem totally powerless to ensure that that wealth created is reasonably distributed, at least leaving the bottom rung with an income which is uh, keep, a way of keeping them healthy. Uh, the national minimum wage is a, uh, a poverty wage in London. And I have demonstrated with students outside the LSE for the London Living Wage and outside the HSB Bank for the London Living Wage. And I'm very glad to say it worked on both occasions as we were with students and we were uh, with um, cleaners and uh, that was same outside the um, uh, HSBC Bank uh, annual conference. Now, um, it, the government is the problem. We have the housing market collapsed and we have a hundred million children in overcrowded housing and four million people on the, um, on the waiting list of the councils. It's government's policies which has left us where we are and what do we do about it? Little question, easy one. Who are you directing it to? Uh, are you directing it to one of the speakers in particular? Uh, uh, both. International problem. <laughs> Um, well, let me try. <laughs> what is government? Government is the problem, did I hear you say? I mean, I think government is a problem. Um, but actually, even the best government policies in the world, in any country, wouldn't be sufficient if there wasn't the right culture within the business community, for one thing, um, and indeed an ethos more generally through society. Um, I mean, what Dr. Umar, I think, said at one point in, in your speech, I think is exactly right. There's been a pervasive change in social ethical norms, whatever, for want of a better word, probably in many societies in the world. He, he, he made the point it's not confined to Western societies, and my sense is that's exactly right. It's not confined to Western societies, <coughs> excuse me, societies. But it is a pervasive problem. Now, I think this is traced... Uh, it's traceable to something that you might call market fundamentalism. I mean, there has in the last 20 to 30 years been uh, an ethos which has prevailed in the markets, and I don't just mean in the financial markets here, I think more generally through society's commercial relationships, which could be has been described as a market fundamentalism, which kind of goes as follows. If I've got a product, and I think there's a market for it, and I've got a contract, and it's legal, I don't have to ask any other questions about rightness or suitability. Um, and that has actually prevailed. It's prevailed in the banking industry in, in, in the last decade or so. Not universally, to be very clear, not universally, but there's been enough of it around to be a damaging problem. It's prevailed much more generally as a social ethos, I would suggest. Um, the causes of it are quite complex. Um, and quite difficult to handle and therefore I think it's hard to blame governments for it because I think it's a more pervasive issue than that. It clearly has something to do with urbanisation. Um, the, the, you know, the biggest social change in, in that the, the we're confronting as we live and it's still playing itself out in every country in the world is urbanisation. 
allied to globalization. I think the two phenomena are inter intimately linked. And one of the consequences or features of urbanization is it just does break down older, more deep-rooted norms and assumptions about relationships and behavior. And I don't know that we've got a simple answer to how you deal with this, because what is for sure is you can't turn the clock back. Uh, you can't de-urbanize society, uh, and you can't de-globalize the world economy, I don't think. Um, I also think one shouldn't forget the benefits of both the phenomena, but they bring with them these very nasty side effects. Um, and in you know, the best will in the world, government would find it difficult to deal with all of the consequence of this. I think it's the big moral, social challenge of our time. Of course, government can become a problem if the, if the moral norms of the society become weak. See, the, the prize, uh, once the Prophet Muhammad was asked, uh, how do we know what is right and wrong? He said, ask your own self. The conscience, if your conscience pricks, don't do it. If your conscience allows it, you can go ahead. But now, of course, if the conscience has become weak, we saw and we see in the in our societies that a lot lot of people's conscience is almost dead. And so, what are we going to do with it? Don't we need somebody to take care of the problem so people are not exploited, people are not cheated? There is justice everywhere. People get fair wages. People have uh, uh, unemployment insurance. All these things, you know, these things could have been done by by the private sector if everybody was just and his conscience was alive. <coughs> but when this is not the case, then the government has to come into the picture. If uh, if we don't do this, the our societies will be very unjust and very unfair. The government's role is to ensure that there is justice in society and everything is in order. And this is what the governments try to do. But of course, sometimes they may go to the excess. We have to prevent them from doing this. And sometimes, most of the time, of course, they, they, they do the right things. Quite a difficult issue, isn't it? I know with, um, as a lawyer, talking to our, you know, the, the baby lawyers, teaching them contract, and you're trying to work out um, what legal regime, and sometimes it's a substitute, what will the government do um, to put in place what used to be there when we lived in a village, when trust and responsibility were um, very much easier because people knew each other. You had to see people in the streets, and I think this is part of globalization, that you don't know who you're dealing with. You don't have to look at them. You don't have to um, face up to them. And I'm not sure that you can just say, well, the government will substitute. It will do something to substitute for that uh, trust responsibility line. Okay, there are lots and lots of questions, but I've indicated to a couple of people. So um, the person over there nearest the wall, and then there's someone over here, and then we must take one in the middle, and then we'll come back on this side. 
Hello, uh, my name is Kazeer Rahman and I'm doing a PhD at um, the Law Department. I'm, I think I have a few comments, but I'm going to cut it down to one comment and two questions, one for each. I think there's a brief, really it'll be within two minutes. Um, the comment is, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what debt and equity actually means. From an economic perspective, they're pretty much the same thing. It's a characterization of income. Whichever way you do it, it doesn't make a difference in terms of the actual return. Leaving this aside, moving on to the question. We're talking about the morality of, of society. Um, I have a big problem with this, because if you look at history, morality wasn't even a concern. Right now we have human rights, we have all these different jurisdictions, we have all these, um, the law of, of war, which entitles us, or in effect, gives us a lot more right in terms of morality now than we had in 200 years ago, where people were chopped off left, right, and center. That's one thing. So in effect, morality, we have better morality now than we ever actually did in history. Second of all, coming on down to the question of ethical banking. Um, the problem that I have with this is, as, this, as, a, as a HSBC is a public, is a public company, it is fundam its fundamental position or job is to maximize shareholder, shareholder wealth or profit. There is an inconsistency between this and ethical banking. How can you correlate to this? When your shareholder tells you you have to maximize profit, which is a capitalist organization created to disengage people from their ethical structures and to disengage with them with their... With their Sorry, I'm getting a bit uh, uh, riled up. Um, and with their profits, and how can we engage with this in terms of ethical, ethical structures? And in a way, what could mean is that you're effectively asking people to take less risk, or you're asking them to take a less, um, less return on their, on their capital. If I take a risk, um, I would expect a high return if it's, if it's a risky endeavor. If I take a less risky endeavor, then the return is lower. Correspondingly, there's a less chance of me losing my capital. And I think that's just the way it is. I think we'll get, give this one to you. We won't get both people to ask. I think the point that you're missing is the difference between the short, medium and longer term. Actually, I think the job of a business is indeed to maximise shareholder value, but to do it sustainably. That means thinking about what is the long-term formula for business success. And if you think in those terms, then you don't go for the short-term profit, whatever the medium and longer-term consequences, and you then naturally find yourself thinking about what is the best way of nurturing uh, your relationship with your clients, uh, whatever sort of client they be, whether it's a big corporate, uh, where you want a long-term strategic partnership, you might even say, with a big corporate, or whether it's with the ordinary individual customer, where you want to continue to have the relationship with them over the longer term. And indeed, I'd take the point even further, that when you think in those kinds of terms about sustainable profit generation, you then find yourself thinking in terms of what is it that, that helps me ensure that my colleagues in the business are properly engaged in the business. And again, that drives you to thinking about longer term issues. And then finally, and increasingly important in this day and age, what is the responsibility you have within the communities where you do the business? And again, that takes you into longer term issues. So I wouldn't accept for a moment that the, that the task of shareholder value maximization is somehow inconsistent with ethical, sustainable behavior. On the contrary, so long as you have properly understood that shareholder value maximization goal as a sustainable long-term goal, they're not so much, uh, so far from being incompatible, they're actually interdependent. Over here. Thank you. Um, my name is Mohammed Hassan from Abstract Securities. We're a developer here, real estate developer in uh, London. Um, my question is largely directed to Mr. Green. Um, there has been uh, a move, a great deal of lobbying to 
reintroduce aspects of Glass-Steagall or, or uh, ideas inspired from that, essentially split commercial and investment banking. Um, it's something that raises the question for me, and, and indeed for people much more capable than myself, that in terms of Islamic finance, Islamic banking specifically, Islamic finance and banking is nothing if it isn't the actual uh, application of capital to effective asset management with a view to creating return. If the two are split, then you know, in many respects, we, there is a risk that the development of Islamic finance is handicapped very greatly. I suppose my question to you is, in terms of your position as chairman of the largest UK bank, certainly, and certainly one of the largest in the, in, in the world, what insights can you offer in terms of how that point should be made? Because I can see that point being lost, as it were, in the whole sort of a noise of uh, policy making, basically. Thank you. Well, I think that's an interesting point. I must admit I hadn't thought of the issue of Glass-Steagall in, in terms of its impact on Islamic finance. I think it's an interesting one. I, to be clear, I do not support the introduction of Glass-Steagall, and indeed I don't think it's possible, uh, and I don't think it'll happen. Um, the, 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 the idea that you could, in, in the context of modern global borderless capital markets, and they're borderless not only between geographies but also between products, that you could impose some legal-based definition uh, between one, um, to be one class of activity and another one, uh, I, I think it would be very difficult to implement even if that's what the regulators thought they wanted to do. But you do make a very interesting point, since, since investment banking is usually uh, conceived of, of as including product structuring, um, and asset-based activity, it would on the face of it drive a wedge between the, the classic uh, features of Islamic finance, and here I'm very conscious that I'm treading on technical ground where I might get out of my depth quite quickly, but, 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 but the, 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 between that on, on the one hand and routine commercial banking on the other, which I suspect wouldn't be wise. But in any event, I, I think you could set your heart at ease. I don't think it's going to happen. You sure? Um, there's in the middle <laughs> sorry in the middle then in the front I think we should have one more over here and then back on this side so you no no you, then you then at the uh, my name is Mikola Korsikov I'm a corporate lecturer at London Institute of Technology um, I have a question to Dr. Omar Chapra you mentioned the link between the debt and the real sector and uh, well, it seems to be very weak to amount to universal solution for the uh, financial problem in the economy, particularly thinking of the valuation problem and getting excessive uh, credits and, and, and the borrowings uh, for the overvalued assets. We, we should think of Dubai in this case. So what would be your personal opinion on this issue? institution or country which uh, resorts to excessive debt, then of course the problems are going to arise because uh, the, they, they should see the, the capital of the, of the persons who are uh, borrowing uh, for this purpose. If they take debt far more than their ability to repay, this problem will, will arise. And so it doesn't mean anything. In Muslim societies, problems can arise just like in Western societies. 
we are not angels <laughs> and here my name is mohammed i'm uh, a student at the icma center university of reading my question is uh, in practice you discover that islamic products are still are more expensive than than the conventional products uh, i would like to know why and uh, also i'd like to know what, what uh, the banks or hsbc in particular is doing to make these products cheaper and more available to the general public thank you well islamic uh, products tend to be more expensive because islamic banks are still very small and they have not do not have the economies of scale the large uh, conventional commercial banks enjoy the economies of scale and that's why they are their their products can be can be less expensive once the the size of the islamic financial market increases i'm sure the the cost is going to go down but i have i think the the difference even at the moment is not very significant it is sometimes the the difference is overplayed because uh, if their cost was very very high then they would uh, not be able to have the customers that they are having some of these customers would come definitely because of their faith but a lot of other customers come to them and not uh, necessarily because the uh, and this is because the cost is not significantly high it is almost uh, competitive with the conventional banks um, i'm i'm hesitant to 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 dive into what is a very technical question for the reasons i mentioned earlier but one of the points is the point that i was making in my remarks about standardization i mean the more the more the islamic finance industry can move towards greater standardization of products the cheaper the products will be can i answer this um this is going to have to be about the last question isn't it yeah so can you make your question very quick and you might hear yes uh, i'm uh, active in the realm of uh, inventions basically in the architectural area and in the media area and uh, somehow um, going back to what i'm not a royalist at all but what the, the queen's basic question that means is there a juggernaut uh, again rolling when the previous juggernaut was for everybody else incapable to be seen if uh, the glass steagall uh, proposes or similar uh, uh, methodologies uh, presently are simply not even relatable to islamic uh, finance development on the one side on the other side when uh, profit and loss uh, uh, questions of fairly operations are obviously handicapped utterly and when the consciousness becomes weak Uh, uh, um, um, the way the chair was uh, formulating is when uh, the question of the selling of swaps for gambling purposes cannot be limited now the question then obviously arrives 
at which point are the speakers going to be able to define the second uh, juggernaut and are you willing to speak openly up and warn not just the Queen but everybody else but are you then aware of the damage which in the end might be smaller than the damage when you continue to be blind? They're not giving you an easy ride, are they? <laughs> I don't understand. Um, I don't know if the question really is. is. Let me try. Um, the, when the Queen was here and she said, why did nobody see this uh, happening? So, you know, whatever, we, whatever happens next, are we about to go into another period where nobody sees it happening and we're here to go? I think there are many lessons from the crisis um, that need to be learned um, and it will take some while for all of the implications to be understood and to be addressed. Um, there are lessons for banks and regulators of banks in terms, for example, of the amount of capital banks have to hold against different kinds of activity. Uh, in terms of the kind of liquidity parameters they have to live with and in terms of leverage. We've talked a lot about leverage this evening, quite rightly too. The banking system as a whole was over-leveraged, substantially over-leveraged uh, in the early part of this decade. So there are all sorts of lessons like that. There are other, some, there are other important but rather technical and apparently boring lessons that have to do with accounting um, and have to do with contract law um, and then uh, there are questions about macroeconomic policy management. And then last, and I think absolutely not least, and we have spent a bit of time on this this evening, there are questions about the culture and values within businesses, within banks and with other, within other kinds of businesses. And these are challenges for boards and senior management. I, I, I just, just listing those, I hope, conveys the impression this is a difficult and important, difficult but important program for the world at large. It can't be dealt with in just one country. It has to be dealt with internationally. Um, a huge amount of discussion is going on in the course of this year. And in fact, I think this year is a very pivotal year in it, by the way. Uh, if by the end of this year we haven't reached an international consensus on the structure and regulation of the financial markets, then we may well be in trouble with the next juggernaut, as, as the speaker suggests. Um, I'm not that pessimistic. I think we will, in fact, get there. And it, but in the meantime, there's many months' worth of intense uh, debate um, going to need to take place. And it will take all of the international goodwill and cooperation that we can muster to get this done on a sensibly coordinated basis. No final word? Mm. No? Yeah, I would like to add something. Because the term Islamic finance is essentially a misnomer because all the principles of Islamic finance are also the principles of Western societies or even India and other societies as well because interest is prohibited not only by Islam but also by Judaism, Christianity and Hinduism. The followers of these four religions constitute two-thirds of the world's population. So, I mean, any system which is trying to get rid of interest, it is not right to call it Islamic. It is, uh, it, it is, uh, it belongs to all societies. But it is just like American values. American values, what are American values? 
the same as British values or uh, or Muslim values or Chinese values. So it, it, there is a tendency on the part of societies to claim something for themselves which does not belong only to them, and this is this is why there is this is Islamic finance. Otherwise, it should be ethical financing or whatever name you wish to call it. That's a very good name. <laughs>